Hello, thank you for downloading this podcast of the NYU Abu Dhabi Institute. We hope you enjoy listening to this. For more information about our programs, please visit www.nyuad.nyu.edu slash institute. Thank you, Francesco. That's true, we met about 10 years ago when I spent a few years searching for dark matter. And after spending uh, two years searching for dark matter, actually I, was, I got a telephone call from Geneva that uh, said, uh, actually the story is that uh, I actually deviated from the subject of my lecture because you triggered me. I was working on Higgs physics since 1987. I was a young student then. And uh, around 2010, I noticed that uh, I don't progress. I don't get any kind of uh, promotion. I, w- I really wanted to lead the Higgs group of Atlas. Atlas is a big experiment at CERN, and I didn't get it. So I decided maybe I should switch a field and I should go to dark matter. And that's how I got to the dark matter. So I went uh, for about two years to work in Italy, where I met Francesco in dark matter search, and suddenly, once I released the eagerness and uh, wanting to be the heat convener of Atlas, I get a telephone call in April uh, 2010 telling me, would you like to come back to Sun and become the Higgs convener of Atlas? Not only statistics, all of the Higgs search in Atlas. And I said, wow. And I remember the song of Sting. If you love somebody, let her go. If she belongs to you, she will come back to you. Because I completely let off the Higgs, and then they called me back, and I became the Higgs convener. So it's a big pleasure to be here. Actually, I was waiting with Francesco for 10 years till we could actually invite an Israeli here. And now I'm here, and probably you see a lot of Israelis around here now since the piece a year ago. And it's a big pleasure for me to give this talk about the Higgs search. Actually, we celebrated now 10 years to Higgs search. I was hunting the Higgs since 1987, as I said. And uh, for 25 years, I was hunting the Higgs. And in 2011, I became the head of the Higgs group in the Atlas experiment at CERN, leading the group towards the discovery in July 2012. And we just celebrated the 10 years to this. But the story of the Higgs actually started in 1964. In 1964, I was a very, very little child. I mean, about the age of some of the children that I see here in the crowd. I had no idea my life was going to be entangled with the Higgs boson, actually the rest of my life. So is the musician I love, Nick Cave, who wrote the Higgs boson blues in uh, 50 years, in 2012, after the discovery of the Higgs boson. So, in 1964, so you get the proportion, and that's the year the, the Beatles invaded America. But that is also the year that uh, three pa- two papers came, one from Peter Higgs from Edinburgh, and the one from uh, a supervisor and his student. It was uh, Robert Braut and Francois Engler from Belgium. Both papers dealt with the same thing. They were both dealt with something called broken symmetries and mass. They explained how particles can acquire mass. That's the, the thing that they, they did. They gave a model for this. So in a nutshell, this is what my lecture is about. In 1964, Higgs and Glenn Broad predicted the existence of a field. 
I will explain later what is the field, but you know what is the field because you use your cell phone. There is an electromagnetic field around here and you use it actually to call and talk to people. So there is another field, not only the electromagnetic field, there's also the Higgs field. <clears throat> and what does the Higgs field does? The Higgs field is actually generating the mass of particles, which is essential for our existence, and I will explain it as well. And in, 90, in 2012, 50 years, about 50 years after the prediction, 50 years after the prediction of the existence of the Higgs field, it was discovered in Geneva by two experiments, Atlas, where I led the Higgs group, and another group called CMS, so two competing experiments that actually also confirmed each other discovery. And what is the Higgs field? The Higgs field is something that is everywhere, and it, actually it's an extra power. Electromagnetic field has to do with the electromagnetic power, electric power, electric force, and the Higgs is another force simply, another force uh, interaction in nature, and we will talk about it. Now, since you can imagine that since 2012, I gave lots of talks about the Higgs, and there is uh, one common thing to all the talks. When I finish the talk, there's always somebody raising their hands, and I promise you that it could happen also here, even when I say it here. It always happens, and say to me, so was it worth to invest $9 billion in searching for the Higgs? What can we do with it? What application can we do with it? Can we actually control the mass and become thinner and things like that? And my answer, which actually irritates a lot of people, is I don't care because we do basic science, and basic science we do because we are curious. Basic science about curiosity-driven science, which is actually something that uh, you're curious about how the world works, and it can compete only with imagination. So basic science is about, as I said, curiosity, and you don't ask yourself what can one do with it. There's a very famous story about the basic science, but I will come to it in a second. But anyway, about imagination, Mr. Albert said that imagination is more important than knowledge. So you remember the importance of curiosity. I took the famous equation, E equals mc squared, and let's see what does it mean. I don't know how many of you know that it's mass and the speed of light, but let's change it a little bit. It's mind times curiosity squared. So this is about basic science, mind and curiosity, and it's more about curiosity. Because if we did not do basic science and do only applied science, we would still uh, going with chariots here, horses. Nobody would develop cars, nobody would develop ships, airplanes, and certainly not missiles. Basic science invented all the electricity, all thermodynamics, and everything that uh, gave us engines and all these things, and actually that's why we can use the missiles today and fly to the moon or even further away. If we only use applied science, we would still going around with candles because nobody would investigate and actually discover electricity like Maxwell and Faraday, and actually we would use candles, maybe very sophisticated candles, ones that do not drip or something like that, but still candles, okay? And now we, we don't only have the lights, beautiful lights driven by electricity, we also have computers and we have the WWW and when it comes to WWW, let me just tell you a little anecdote, is that in 1989 or so, I was sitting in my office at CERN, I was a very young scientist, 
And uh, there was sitting with me a guy from, uh, who later came to Weizmann, but he was Canadian. And uh, Tim Berners-Lee came into the office and showed this diagram to Lauren and uh, Lauren Levinson, I think you know him. And he said to him, uh, I was in the office at that time, and he said to him, look, uh, I have some idea that I'm developing here at CERN. It has to do with hypertext and hyper and hyper and hyper. And I'm developing a group now. And uh, the thing is that in about 10 years, they'll discover the Higgs. There'll be about uh, 1,000 people signing the paper. I mean, if everybody will take a day to read the paper, it will take 1,000 days till everybody reads the paper. It will be three years. So it's impossible to have papers like this. We have to find something that everybody can click and get the paper at once. Everybody can comment, and everybody talks to each other, etc., etc. We need the hypertext, we need this and this and this. So I'm forming a group. Why don't you join and be that and that? You see the diagram has people missing here. Only Tim Berners-Lee is here. And Lauren said, let me think, let me think. And then he came back to him and said, I don't have time for this. And I'm sure that Lauren is uh, sorry a lot for that because uh, Tim Berners-Lee invented the WWW at CERN and now he's a very big uh, and important uh, guy. So you have the WWW because of the Higgs. I want you to remember that. The Higgs gave birth to the WWW. Even if it's not important, <laughs> even if nothing, if nothing can do with it, you have WWW. So we know the curiosity is uh, driving knowledge. And uh, a very good example of curiosity is 1895, where Thompson discovers the electron, and everybody shouts at him and laughs at him and says, why do you search for something that nobody can see? What do you care? Why do you do it? And then when he discovers the electron, he raises a glass of champagne. It's a very famous story, and says to his group, it was a very small group to, uh, to discover the electron. You don't need a collaboration. And he says to the useless electron. And since then, the electron changed our life, changed the world, etc. Now, as I said, Thomson could do it with a very simple instrument that costs about $100, which is called CRT, cathode ray tube. I mean, only the old people, there are not too many here, know what it is. But it's the old television. You know, we used to have televisions that size, that thick because they, they, they were based on a cathode ray tube that shoots electrons into the fluorescent screen. They don't exist anymore. The children don't even know what it is. They don't know what is a telephone. They don't know what all these things. But it costs about $100. It's really very, very simple. Now today, all this cream, all these ex cream experiments, let's call it, all these things that you can do in a second are gone. If you want to do an experiment and discover something now, you need to, to buy a CRT that costs $9 billion. And this is why it's called big science. And when you do big science, you cannot do it by one person only. You need the, a whole world. So this is a map. In the green, you see the countries that are members, not of CERN, of the Atlas collaboration that discovered the Higgs. Not all of them were members at the time of the Higgs. But I think it's mostly all the world. I mean, this is almost all the world except some countries in Africa. And that includes also Abu Dhabi. This is uh, Malta, right, uh, who is uh, signing the agreement for the Emirates, for the all uh, university universities in the Emirates. They joined the Atlas collaboration in July 2021. So the Emirates are also members of uh, Atlas. And this is a picture of about 5% <laughs> of Atlas or something like this, because Atlas today is 4,000 people and also the other experiment. 
Now, at the time we discovered the Higgs atlas was 3,000 people, so there were two papers, one from Atlas, one from CMS, the competing experiment. On each paper, 3,000 scientists signed. This is a tradition that they sign by alphabetic, you don't even know who did what. If somebody just put a screw, he gets his name on the paper. So there are 3,000 people, and that's just a few of us celebrating the Higgs discovery in 2012. So you can actually, if you like, you can add, I hope it will work. No, it doesn't work. Okay, I thought it will work, but it doesn't. Okay, never mind. So let's see what questions can we ask curiosity. What are we made of? So this question was uh, well answered, and I'll give the answer in a few seconds, but it has a lot to do with the Higgs. Second question is, why do we exist? I mean, everybody asks himself this question. Or how has it all begun? Okay, we know about a big bang, but now people question, was it one big bang? Is there a big bang any second? What was before the big bang? What is the meaning that time started with the big bang that doesn't make any logic or sense or whatever? And what is the fate of the universe? Where are we going to? Are we going to collapse? Are we going to end? Are we going to expand forever? Now all the, these questions, the answer somehow depends on mass, lies in mass, the answer. And this, this has to do with the Higgs boson. So let's start with the, what are we made of? So actually this question was asked 2,500 years ago by Democritus was a real genius, because think about it. 2,500 years ago, one, we look at a stone, at a human being, and we we'll say that both are made of the same thing, and he calls these things atoms, that one cannot separate them. I think this requires somebody to be a real genius, because this is a crazy thought, that the chair and the human being are made of the same thing. And he said nothing exists except atoms in space, Everything else is opinions. That's Democritus. And he was uh, almost right, because we know now that atoms are separable. But when he said that everything is made of atoms, he actually meant elementary particles of today. We took the word atom and used it in the wrong way. Now, the atoms, the way we use it, are actually constituent particles. They are made of protons and neutrons that make the nucleus of the atom. And around it, there is an electron somewhere obeys the law of quantum mechanics. Now, it turns out that protons and neutrons themselves are made of even more basic fundamental particles called quarks. And that's about the structure of matter. Quarks, electrons, and some other force carriers, which I'll talk about in a second. So actually, I want to show you that matter is very, very simple. So the world around us is made of proton neutrons that are made of up and down quarks and electrons around them. There are a little bit more to make what we call the standard model. But we need to talk also about the forces, because if the particles around them they don't interact with each other, nothing can happen. <coughs> so besides gravity, I think the most uh, famous force is the electromagnetic force. <coughs> now, the electromagnetic force, for example, is responsible for electrons repelling each other. I apologize. For electrons repelling each other. 
And uh, modern physics taught us that uh, this thing happens, the electromagnetic force happens when two particles exchange a force mediator, a particle that mediates the force. And in the case of electromagnetic force, of the electric force, this is the photon, very similar to the photon of light that you see here. So by exchanging photons, electrons can interact with each other. So electron, say electrons can interact with each other, so photon is a force carrier, is the carrier of the electromagnetic interaction. But there are other forces. I mentioned gravity. There is the strong nuclear force, which I'm not going to talk about in this lecture, but I need to talk about a very famous and unknown force, because most people don't even know about it if they are not physicists, and they know the use of it. And I will talk about it in a second, but first I want to actually say something else about the electromagnetic force. I was talking about the radioactive force, but I want to say something about the electromagnetic force, because I also already mentioned it before, that when you take your cell phone and talk to each other, there is an electromagnetic field. And the electromagnetic field, when you try to talk, you actually invest energy. It costs uh, some energy when you talk, right? The battery exhausts. You invest the energy, you actually disturb the electromagnetic fields, and you create from it uh, photons that actually transmit the communication. That's what actually happens when you try to talk. So radiation is the movement of photons from one place to another. You disturb the electromagnetic field. A photon is some incarnation of the electromagnetic field at the point of the disturbance. And when this photon is moving, it's called electromagnetic radiation. Okay, so, as I said, the radioactive force, maybe you didn't know that it exists, you only knew, knew that there is some radioactive decay and the hospitals use radioactive radiation beta radiation or whatever to cure, try to cure cancer, etc., etc. But this is because there is another force of nature, which is called the radioactive force or the weak force. And it's responsible for something very interesting. A neutron can become a proton and change completely the nature of the nucleus. And when a neutron becomes a proton, it's driven by the radioactive force. And it happens via the emission of electron and neutrinos. Noton becomes proton, and from the nucleus it emits electron and another new particle we didn't talk about yet, which is called neutrino. So noton becomes proton plus electron plus neutrino. This is radioactive, and how does this happen? We said already that the electromagnetic force occurs via the transition of photons from one place to another. Photon is the mediator, the carrier of the electromagnetic force. The carrier of the radioactive force, of the force that actually drives the radioactive decay, this carrier is another photon, but it has a different name. It's called uh, actually a W, or a W boson, like the Higgs is the Higgs boson, a W boson. And this is actually the radioactive radiation. So we start to see the structure of matter and forces. We see that in the first generation of particles, there is the two quarks up and down that make the proton neutron, the electron, the neutrino, the photon, and the W. 
So, this is the first generation. The weak force radioactive is mediated by the W boson, and the electromagnetic force is mediated by the photon, like the photon of light. W is also sort of a photon, just a different photon, because it mediates the radioactive force. Now, there is somehow nature plays a game with us. There are another two duplicates, all in all three duplicates, three generations of particles. The second generation is simply repeats the first generation, but instead of an electron, we have a heavier electron called muon, and instead of the up and down quark, we have heavier quarks called strained and charm. And there is a third generation, and that's it. And the third generation is made of even a heavier electron called tau, and two very heavy quarks. One is called the top quark, and the other called a bottom quark. Now, it sounds like I'm reading for you a telephone book. I'm not expecting you to remember all the names. I just wanted to know that there are three generations of particles. There are the quarks, there are the electrons, and there are the neutrinos, and there are force carriers. The photon mediates the electromagnetic force, the W mediates the radioactive force, and there are two I did not talk about, but I'll mention them here. There's the Z boson, which also mediates the radioactive force, but it's none of my interest now. And there's the gluon that mediates the strong nuclear force, which I have not talked about yet at all. Now, what is the difference between the photon and the W photon, the, the mediator of the electromagnetic and the mediator of the weak force. The electromagnetic force can go to infinite. If you have an electron here, you can sense it with another electron, even if you go to infinite distance, except that as you go away, the forces become, the electric forces become weaker and weaker and weaker, right? You know it? You know it because you know that you can uh, actually generate electromagnetic force by taking a a comb and goes to your hair like this, and you can pull up pieces of papers, you know it. But only if you get close you see it. As you go further away, it becomes weaker and weaker and weaker. But the range of the electromagnetic force is infinite. If nothing stops it, if nothing absorbs it, the photon that mediates it, if nothing absorbs it, it will go on forever. It just becomes weaker and weaker and weaker. The radioactive force, on the other hand, has a short range, meaning if you go away from the source of the radioactive radiation, it's like something camouflages the force. You don't feel it anymore. It's not there. And as a result of this, the photon is massless, and therefore it can move in the speed of light and uh, mediate the force to an infinite distance. And the W boson is massive. And as a result of this, the range of the radioactive force, or what is called the weak force, is short. And this was a big problem in 1964. The reason was that physicists like beauty very, very much. They like that things are driven by some symmetry. And they even discover the symmetries. They discovered that symmetry makes the photons massless. 
But the same symmetry would have driven the W to also be massless. But that doesn't work with nature because the range of the weak force is finite. So the W must be massive. And they didn't understand how can the laws of physics work because how does the W acquire mass? That was 1964. And this is where these two papers came and explained how the W can acquire mass in spite of the symmetry and actually not even really breaking the symmetry. They showed how you can break the symmetry in something called spontaneous symmetry breaking, give mass to the W, not giving mass to the photon, and everybody is happy. But it was a model. It was a model. How do you prove that this model is right? And why all this thing is important? I said curiosity, but why it's so important to give mass? In order to explain this, I need to talk to you a little bit about atoms. Do you have an idea what is the size of an atom? It's a rhetoric question, because I will tell you the answer in a second. So asking what is the size of the atom? Now imagine you see the word size in print. Look at this title. Title is the little dot above the eye. You see it in print. And I ask you how many atoms are hidden in this tiny dot of ink that make the title above the I or the J. Anybody can guess? 100, 1,000, 10,000, 100,000, million. I mean, doesn't it bother you? I mean, doesn't it bother you how many atoms you're made of? What is the size of the atoms? There are seven trillion atoms in the little dot above the eye in print, not on the screen. Seven trillion atoms, it's seven million million atoms. Now who cares? Who cares? Who cares what is the size of the atom? Does it make any difference? So in order to explain this, I need to give you some quantum mechanics in a nutshell something called the uncertainty principle. Quantum mechanics teaches that the reason why you see it now, you see me, still, and not blurred, is because I'm heavy. Heavier particles are well located. As particles becomes kind of uh, less weight and less weight and less weight and less and less and less and less, they become blurry. The lighter the electron, the uncertainty in its location is bigger. This is the uncertainty principle. Had the electron had zero mass, we wouldn't be able to locate it. It would have been everywhere. And the size of an atom would have to be infinite because the electron mass imprisons the atom in a cage which determines its size. If electrons are lighter, atoms are bigger. Because an atom cannot be smaller than the uncertainty in the location of the electron. 
the uncertainty in the location of the electron determines the size of the atom. If electron would have been massive, atoms would have been smaller. Lighter electrons, atoms are bigger. And what do we care of the size of the atom? As I said, smaller electron mass would drive the atoms to be bigger, smaller than what they are. Bigger atoms would be very far from each other in, in the matter. And the electric force between them would have been smaller. And if there's no attractions between the atoms, they would easily separate from each other. So water would boil in a very low temperature, not 100 degrees. And there wouldn't be water in the world. And without water, we cannot survive. Our existence depends on water. If water would evapor evaporate in a very low temperature, our existence would be in danger. And all the chemistry would have been different. So atoms cannot be bigger. If electron would have been heavier than what it is, atoms would have been smaller. But here's another danger. When atoms become smaller, a new force comes into the game, the nuclear force, which also has a very short range. But when atoms are smaller, the nuclear force starts to play a role, and there's a competition between the nuclear force and the electromagnetic force. And then one can show that galaxies would not form. Without galaxies, no universe, we wouldn't be here. So it turns out that it is a miracle. The electron has exactly the mass needed for our existence. This is one of the miracles of all miracles. So it's a very important question, what gives particles the mass? What gives specifically the mass to the electron? And also, how does it happen? So let me summarize the importance of mass. No mass, no galaxies, no Earth, no man, nothing. And in that case, the anthropic principles, I wouldn't have to give any answers because nobody would be here to ask a question. But we are here, particles do have mass. So where does mass come from? Again, the two papers of 1964, <coughs> they envisage the existence of a field called the Higgs field. Later it was called the Higgs field. I mean, if you invent a field, your name is Higgs. At first it is not called Higgs. Later it would have been called Higgs. The Higgs field. And the idea is that this Higgs field is with us all the time. And particles that move through this field, they interact with the field and it holds them back. I mean, imagine yourself walking in a thick sand. It's hard to move. You feel much, much heavier. If you go to a dune in the desert, and you have a lot here, and you start to walk, you become heavier. You go to the sea, you start to walk, the water re resists you, and you feel heavier. So if there is an interaction with the field, and the field actually stops you, you become heavier. And that's the idea of the Higgs field. And actually, if this is proven to be correct, 
and they found a way to give the W and other particles their mass, one could easily say that we owe our existence to the Higgs field, amongst other things. So let me explain a little bit what is the field in a nutshell, so we understand it a little bit better. You have fields all around you all the time. Temperature is a field because it's everywhere. And you can measure the temperature everywhere and you can map it. And the map of temperature everywhere is a field. If I look at the sea, the ocean, you have a beautiful sea around here, just a kilometer from here. I saw one. You can map the height of the water and you have a field where the parameter of the field is the height of the water. Now you can disturb the ocean field by putting a bump beneath the ocean and when you put a bump it will create a wave. And on this wave somebody can actually surf to the beach. And when a wave of water comes to the beach, does it bring water with it? What do you think? A wave of water comes to the beach, does it bring water with it? No, yeah, no, right, no. No, because had it brought water, we would be in a constant tsunami all the time. No. The water goes down and up and down and up, it's a wave, right? It's a wave, it's moving, and the wave carries only one thing, energy. So you invest energy, you create a perturbation in the field. This perturbation is called in physics a particle when it's in the quantum level, atomic level, and this perturbation can actually go along to the beach and carries energy. When we talk of the electromagnetic field and we disturb it with energy, we create a wave-like packet, which we call a photon. And when this wave packet is moving, it's a particle which is moving, and it's a photon moving, and it's called electromagnetic radiation. <coughs> so, to summarize, if you have a field, if you have a field and you don't know if it exists or not, there's one way to discover it exists or not. You disturb it, you put a bomb, you invest energy in it, and then you hope that if the field is there, a particle would have been created, and a particle is something you can catch, you can detect. You cannot detect the field, you can detect the particle of the field. So as I said, the only way to detect the field is by disturbing it. And by disturbing it, you have to invest energy. And this energy should be at least equivalent to the mass of the particle that makes the field. A particle is an incarnation of a field. It has some mass. So if the Higgs mass is, I can tell you the answer already, is 125 times the mass of the proton, you have to invest an energy of at least 125 the mass of the proton in order to discover the Higgs field and generate from the Higgs field the Higgs boson, the Higgs particle. So again, particles acquire mass by other interaction with the Higgs field. You want to discover the Higgs boson, you have to disturb the Higgs field by investing energy 
and create the Higgs boson and then catch it. But 1964, nice model, nice theory. The puzzle is not complete. People look for the Higgs boson, try to disturb an unseen, invisible field. And we are very good in disturbing visible things. That's what we do all the time. We search for dark matter. We don't see it. We breathe air now. You don't see it, but it's there. You know it's there. We can actually discover the invisible by disturbing it. So this is like a little girl, something like six, seven years old, that gets a puzzle. And the puzzle is made of 17 pieces. And it's called the standard model. So she goes into the room, she starts to make the puzzle, and there's a missing piece. She starts to shout at the mother and tells her, Mommy, what did you buy me? It's not working. There's a missing piece. The mother is sure that uh, the girl is wrong. She comes into the room. She tries to put it in another order. Whatever she tries, there's a hole. There's a missing piece. So she has to admit, there's a missing piece. She tells the daughter, don't worry, my child. We will call the manufacturer and ask him to send us a, an, uh, another piece, the missing piece. Let's see who is the manufacturer. Let's look at the box. They go to the box and they look and they see made by, Do, by God about 13.7 billion years ago. Well, that's a little bit difficult to call God. And also, 13.7 billion years ago, probably doesn't have any pieces anymore. So we have to do. So what do we do? We take big scissors, we take the material from which the puzzle was made, and we make the little piece again. We make the Higgs particle from scratch. So this is exactly what we do in a collider. In a particles collider at CERN, we collide protons close to the speed of light. And from the energy that is created there, we try to, to actually recreate the conditions that existed 10 to the minus 10, about, uh, say, uh, one-tenth of a billionth of a second after the Big Bang, and actually create the Higgs boson from scratch, from energy, again. We actually recreate the Big Bang, the density of the universe after the Big Bang, and try to create the Higgs particle from scratch. This is what we do. The scissors are the accelerators, and the material comes from the energy of the collision, which has to be huge, because we have to actually create the energy of the Big Bang. So we go to Geneva. The first thing, we go and see the water. And then we go 150 meters below the ground, where, where we build a tunnel. We accelerate protons in the tunnel, and they collide. And at the point of the collision, we put a bionic eye. Just like an eye detects photons, this bionic eye can detect other particles, not only photons. It's a huge bionic eye. It's an electronic bionic eye. It actually detects the particle that made and take a picture of it, like a camera. It's like a huge camera. And this picture tells us what we see. And we know exactly by simulation how the Higgs boson should look like. And this is the story of the discovery of a new particle of the Higgs boson. That's the way that it works. Now, this bionic eye, the detector, is huge because it has to be able to discover protons, neutrons, 
electrons. Uh, it even discovered neutrinos by the missing energy that is there because it's completely closed. It discovered heavier electrons called muons, heavier electrons called taus. It discovers quarks, all sorts of quarks, top quarks, bottom quarks, jumps, strange. It discovers everything, so it's a huge. And how you discover? By stopping. You discover particles by stopping them. You stop there, you measure the traces in the detector, and that's how you discover them. Now this detector is huge. It's 50 meters times 30 meters times 30 meters. This is the Notre Dame Cathedral. This is Notre Dame Cathedral. So this detector actually fills two thirds of the Notre Dame Cathedral, if you've ever been there. So it's simply huge, and it weighs also about uh, 10,000 tons. It's huge, it's simply huge. <coughs> this is a picture of uh, the end cup of the detector. It started colliding in 2009. That joined the control room of the collider called the Large Hadron Collider. Hadron is the general name for protons and neutrons. And uh, this is the joy uh, at the control room. This is uh, an animation of a collision. It's not really an animation, part of it is truth. It's a combination of animation and truthing. A proton collides with a proton into the detector, and this creates the tracks and the energy deposits in all the other parts of the detector, which we analyze. And uh, when Francesco says that today I'm doing machine learning, what I do today is trying to find some intelligent ways to intelligent ways to tell from the traces in the detector what actually happened in the collision because we don't see the collision we only see the traces so analyze the traces and try to see what is happening in the collision point detector it's a very difficult problem that many many people are working on without with a very partial success so far. So what really happens in a collision? What comes out in a collision? These are pictures. When you stand in the Atlas control room, there are pictures on the wall, they come, every second comes a picture, even more than one picture. They're all different. Now go and analyze this. So I will tell you a little story. This, none of these events is a Higgs boson. I mean, I'm wise after the event, and I know it. It's not easy to detect a Higgs boson because it's very rare. Most of the time, we get other things. Most of the time, we get other things. And even when the Higgs boson is produced, it always comes in a different form, different shape. It's like a, something that changes its face all the time. Because the Higgs can be detected via its decaying to two photons, photons like photons of light via its decay to four electrons. You see here, the four lines are four electrons, the two blue and the two red. It can decay to many things, like uh, here in this case, uh, two electrons and two heavier electrons, two muons. Or in this case, four muons. And there are other decay modes, I didn't even tell you. But most of the time, we get other particles. We don't get the Higgs. So how often is the Higgs produced in a collision? I mean, what is the probability to get a Higgs in the collision? Quantum mechanics tells us that even if the initial conditions are the same, proton collides with the proton, the outcome 
can have many faces, the probability for every possibility. There are many possibilities. So Higgs boson is produced once in a trillion collisions, which is once in a million, million collisions. There are billions of collisions per second, and a simple calculation back of the envelope will show you that the Higgs boson is produced once every 15 minutes. Except that it's random. We don't have a little devil or a little angel or whatever standing there and saying, hey guys, get ready, here comes the Higgs boson. No. No, we get them in a random way. And on the average, every 15 minutes, we get a Higgs boson to go and find a Higgs which is producing one every million, million collision, every trillion collision. How would you identify? This is crazy. To tell you how big is the challenge, let me tell you what is one in a trillion. The ratio between the diameter of the earth and a plant cell, not a plant. You go somewhere here, you pick a leaf, you take a microscope, you look at the cells of the plant. The ratio between the diameter of the earth and the diameter of the plant cell is one to a trillion. So imagine I tell you, listen, somewhere on Earth I marked not a leaf, but a plant cell in a leaf. Go and discover it without uh, picking all the <laughs> leaves on Earth, okay, and destroy Earth. How would you do it? That's a challenge. So it's not a needle in a haystack. Sean Carl called it a hay in a haystack. Why? Because it's not that the Higgs boson is something that everything is colored yellow and the Higgs boson is red and you know what to look for. The Higgs boson is also yellow. It looks like all other particles. As you saw the pictures, they all look the same. It's very difficult to tell the Higgs from the background, from the other particles. They are called the background. The Higgs is a signal, the other particles are the background. So how do we discover a hay in a haystack? So this is a tale of two hypotheses. One of them, because we don't know if the Higgs exists, it's a model. Somebody in 64 proposed a model. Nobody had a better model than this. So we believe the model is right. I'm talking now at about 2010, about 12 years ago. We believe the model is right and we want to check if the hypothesis that there is a Higgs field is correct. Maybe the model is wrong. Maybe there's no Higgs field and we simply don't understand nature and this is it. It could be. Maybe there's no dark matter and we don't understand nature. But we look for it. Until we actually either find it or prove that it does not exist, we will keep on looking for it. So we didn't know if Higgs is there or not. We had a good model and we believed it's there. And we are scientists, we are stubborn. I mean, so there are two hypotheses. One of them is that no Higgs hypothesis, background hypothesis, model is wrong. And the other is there is a Higgs field. So in order to explain to you how we do it, I want to talk of a jar of coins. And there are about two million coins in this specific jar. All the coins are analogous to Higgs-like particles. But if there is a Higgs boson, 
there is one coin that has an excess. Somebody put God or somebody put more coins of this value. In our case, 125 times the mass of the proton. Each coin has a number, which is the mass of the particle. So somebody put a coin with 125 more often than other coins. Maybe yes, maybe not. We don't know. We don't know. So the question we ask is we start to, each collision is, uh, is throwing out a coin from the jar. Each collision is throwing out a coin from the jar. Boom, boom, boom. Now, one in a trillion, okay, it's not two million, it's a big <laughs> mistake of me. It's two trillion, three, four, ten trillion coins, okay? Actually, one in a trillion coins, there will be a coin with a Higgs. So we have to find sophisticated ways to deal with that. Now, how do we know if we see an excess or not? Because statistical fluctuations can give us all sorts of, uh, I mean, if you expect on the average to see after some time, a thousand coins of each kind, statistical fluctuation will give me 950, 1050, 970, 1020. How do I know when there is an excess or not? So I look at what comes out and see where there is an excess. And ask myself, suppose there is no Higgs boson. So suppose there is no extra coin. What is the probability that I get an excess here? If this is a very, very low probability, then I would say, wow, that is not natural. In short, I ask, what is the probability to have an excess in the absence of the Higgs? And if this probability is very low, very low, and I'm talking about 10 to the minus 7, it's more plausible to think that there is a Higgs boson, because how can I have so many coins of the value 125 if there is no Higgs? Somebody probably put Higgs coins inside. So here is an example where I throw the coins. So there was on the average 10,000 coins of each species. And I do see some fluctuation around 125. And I ask myself, what is the probability to get this fluctuation? And the answer is 10 to the minus 3, but 1 to 1,000. And I ask myself, is this low enough to claim a discovery, to claim that this coin is not natural and somebody put extra 125 coins there? And physicists managed to explain to us that even though it's 1 to 1,000, it can still occur, and we wouldn't call it a discovery. We would start to look at this region, but we wouldn't yet call it a discovery. But if we keep on doing collisions, now if it was a fluctuation, it will simply disappear, and another fluctuation appears somewhere else. But if it was not a fluctuation, we will still get excess and excess more and more. The excess will become bigger. And then the probability to get such an excess, which is given in the which is actually shown in the, in, the, in the graph below, you see the probability to get the excess is plausible all the time. And around 125 is uh, 10 to the minus 7 or something like this, 1 to 10 million. So you say to yourself, wow, if it's 1 to 10 million, I don't think that if I throw it about, 
I don't know, about uh, 2,000 times or I don't know, 2 million times in this case. I don't believe that this can be a, a, just a mere fluctuation. It's probably a new particle. Somebody put more coins of 125 there. Somebody put more coins of 125. Now, we can actually measure this fluctuation, these probabilities, low probabilities, in what we call standard deviations. If the probability is 10 to the minus 7, it means that we are five standard deviations away from the normal, from the no-Higgs hypothesis. We are five sigma away from the no-Higgs hypothesis. And people decided in physics, because of some uh, statistical considerations, that if we have a three sigma, one to 1,000 fluctuation, it will be called an observation of a particle, like a, prob a possibility to have a new particle. And if it's 10 to the minus 7, which is called 5 sigma, this is plausible to declare a discovery. So what people were looking for is first for a 3 sigma fluctuation, then they start to be careful. And then if it turns out to be a 5 sigma, this is a discovery which you can write home about and tell the media. So now it's time to tell you about the Higgs discovery. The clear, cleanest and clearest way to see the Higgs was via its uh, incarnation as two photons, like two photons coming, and the mass of the two photons together is 125. I remind you, we did not know the mass in advance. I tell it after the event. I'm wise after the event. I know that the Higgs is 125 times the mass of the proton. But before that, I didn't know it. So we were looking for an excess of the coins. I call a collision a coin. I, we were looking for an excess in coins somewhere. We didn't know where. So when they gave the Nobel Prize for the Higgs, Barbara Cannon, who is the president of the Royal Swedish Academy of Sciences, gave a speech, which was uh, actually a quotation from the book of Isaiah, saying, those who walk in darkness shall see a great light. And I give a quote from this long speech. <clears throat> These are the great moments in every scientist's life when he, she realizes that he, she can suddenly see something that nobody before him or her has seen. And new light is shown on nature. And uh, you know, I think it's rare in the lifetime of a scientist that uh, he actually experienced this enlightenment and it happened to me and I want to share it with you. So I was in Paris with uh, my two right hands, I call them two right hands. One was the statistics uh, expert of Atlas called Alex Reed on the right side. And the other was Maru Mikado, who is now the deputy spokesperson of Atlas. And uh, we were in Marumi's apartment in Saint-Germain, and it was midnight. It was November 2011. The discovery was announced July 2012. November 2011, around midnight, we were waiting for results from CERN. And Marumi says, Elam, do you want some uh, digestive, like a Prima Uve or something? And then he says, you know what? No, I won't give you. You will fall asleep immediately. So I said, no, 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 give me, give me, it's okay. He gives me the Prima Uva, this bottle, and I drink a little glass, and I tell him, you see, I didn't fall asleep. And then at five o'clock in the morning, they shake me. 
And they say, Elam, do you want to see the Higgs? Do you want to see the Higgs? I said, what, what, what? Do you want to see the Higgs? And they said, they sent us this plot from CERN. This is the probability, if you remember, in the absence of Higgs to see the excess that we see. So around 25, we see a probability of 1 to 1,000. So we have something that is very suspicious to be a Higgs bosons, around 125 times the mass of the proton. So now I'll show you how it happened in time. The blue is like the regular jar, nothing special, the blue. When you look at it, you suddenly see that something is growing up. You see a bump. Now this little bump, when you subtract the blue from it, you get the graph in the bottom, which is like the coins graph. And you see that there is an excess around 125. And when one calculates it, this excess is actually looks like this. And actually, this excess is 5 sigma. And this is the discovery. But it was not only seen in the face of the Higgs going to two photons. It was also seen in the Higgs decaying into four electrons. And let me show you how did this happen. The red is actually your background. The red is expected. So you see fluctuations around the red. Nothing special. But suddenly in time, something grows up in the middle left side. You see it, where nobody expects it, above the red. This is a fluctuation that is not probable, that is not plausible. And when you look at it very well, you see that this might be a Higgs boson with a 5 standard deviation. You see, the red wouldn't predict it. It's too big a fluctuation to come from without planting a Higgs there. So there must be a new particle there. So we felt good about it. And this is the final results. We looked in the range of 100 times the mass of the proton to 600 times the mass of the proton. And around 125 times the mass of the proton, we see a fluctuation which is not plausible to come from the background, with the probability of 10 to the minus 7 to come from the background. And we conclude that there must be some new particle there. And that's when they decided to announce a discovery. And that happened in the 4th of July, 2012. So they announced a press conference in the morning of the 4th of July, 2012. And there is an auditorium at CERN. CERN is, a, is the Center European for Research Nuclear. It's the, it's the biggest lab in, uh, in the world, actually, today, where they have a collider. And it's still working, the Large Hadron Collider. And this is where they have a hall of 800 people. But uh, we knew that there are at least uh, 500 invitees, and there's not enough space for everybody there. But we did not know what the CERN director at that time, Rolf Feuer, is going to announce. Will he believe that what we saw is the Higgs boson? Or will we say that we still have to check it, and we still have to confirm it, and we still have to be careful? Because you don't want to make a false announcement. Is it a new particle, or is it just a statistical fluctuation? What would he announce? We didn't know. 
In the, fourth of, in the third of July evening, or in the night of the fourth of July, I mean uh, one o'clock, two o'clock in the morning, we didn't know. The only thing we noticed there, and you see me standing there, is that people are gathering around in the thousands, forming a huge line there. They knew that they won't be able to go into the hall because it's not big enough, but they have a TV in closed circles to show it. And they were queuing along the stairs as well. Some journalists uh, actually, actually describe it as a, a rock concert, except that, in, uh, that uh, instead of flowers, etc., people hold computers, you know, instead of their candles, etc. Anyway, they were standing. But when we saw Peter Higgs enters the room, we knew that there must be something here. We just knew it. And then we saw Peter Higgs with his secretary. And the Saul Anwu, a physicist uh, who was searching for this, not 25 years like me, but 35 or 40 years, came to Mr. Higgs and said to him, she told me that, I was looking for you for over 20 years. And he answered her, now you have found me. <laughs> anyway, so Peter Higgs met for the first time in his life, Francois Angler. I mean, when they wrote the papers in 1964, None of them believed he's going to get a Nobel Prize or be at CERN and meet. A year after that, they got a Nobel Prize, and they, just none of them. And now they meet each other. Now, I have to tell you something about Higgs. I mean, Higgs didn't write many papers in his lifetime. I mean, he's still around. He's very old. He's 90 or something. But he wrote about three or four papers. So you can get a Nobel Prize. You don't need to write a thousand papers. Just need to write the right paper, OK? So Atlas, Fabiola Gianotti from Atlas, Janin Candelas from uh, CMS announced the result. In CMS, we have 4.9 sigma significance. In Atlas, 5 sigma significance. Now, all the people that uh, were <laughs> waiting all night, they fell asleep during the announcement, OK? All the students that were queuing, you know, they all fell asleep. So Rolf Hoyer, the director of CERN, said finally, I think we have it. Do you agree? We have a discovery. We should state it. We observed a new particle consistent with the Higgs boson. It's a milestone. And Higgs said something which for physicists will look very funny. It's really an incredible thing that it happened in my lifetime, because physicists talk about lifetime all the time. So we applauded. And uh, as I said, the media says the Higgs boson treated like a rock star. This is the Atlas Higgs group party. We were very happy. And then came the paper. And the paper was actually a festive uh, article in uh, physics letters. Physics Letters B, and it had actually the two pictures that you are familiar with, both of them now. One of them is the CMS picture on the top left, where you see the bump. And the bottom right shows you the statistical fluctuation. The, remember the, the dip that shows you that it's 10 to the minus 7 from Atlas. And there were two articles in one journal with two only articles, in each one side the 3,000 Higgs hunters, and uh, that's how it goes. And the prizes started to come. 
The Fundamental Physics Prize by Yuri Milner was given, gave $3 million to the past and present spokespersons, or you call it Director of Experiments of Atlas and CMS. And actually, Fabiola Gianotti and uh, Peter Yeni from Atlas say that this price actually belongs to the community and not to them. And they actually uh, established a grant, Atlas PhD grant, that uh, students can get grants to make a PhD in Atlas until this day. And not all the spokesperson of uh, CMS gave up the money. Some did, some did not. But the ones who did actually established the first CMS Fundamental Physics Scholarship announced. It was Jan Incandelas and another one, I don't remember who it was. Fabiola made the runner for the cover of the Time magazine. Fabiola was the spokesperson of Atlas and now she is the director of CERN. The Nobel Prize was awarded to Peter Higgs and, uh, and Francois Engler and it, it was a lot of tension in CERN because we were really expecting this Nobel Prize to go also to CERN or to Atlas and CMS. And uh, all of us were dreaming to get a piece of paper saying that you have a part of a Nobel Prize. And uh, actually the announcement for the Nobel Prize uh, did not come in time. The committee kept sitting for another few hours. And then they told us that uh, some members of the committee said that they should give the third part of the prize to CERN. But it is a custom in physics to give the Nobel Prize to no more than three individuals. And they were arguing if they should break the, the unwritten rule or not. And then they decided not to do it. And actually, we were in a really a bad mood to see that they didn't give it to the experimentalists, only to the two living theoreticians who predicted the Higgs boson, Francois Angler and the Peter Higgs. But in the, in the prize writing, they wrote there that, uh, uh, as I put in a, in a box here, which recently was confirmed with the discovery of the predicted fundamental particles by Atlas and CMS. So this is, the, this is the mention of Atlas and CMS in the Nobel Prize, which is not really a Nobel Prize, okay? Anyway, this is the, the speech of Francois Engler, the speech of Higgs. And now they celebrated 10 years to the Higgs discovery. So Francois Engler and Peter Higgs became a little bit older, but they're still alive, and they actually were uh, webcasted uh, in the ceremony just a few months ago at CERN. Now, I need to finish the lecture by explaining. Uh, it used to be called the God Particle. They don't call it like that anymore. But where did the name God Particle come from? So for many years, uh, there were no answer to this. And I always told people that there is a poetic justice in this because, because without the Higgs it wouldn't exist. So there's something, some spirit of God uh, in this. Like, uh, like the Higgs feels like the spirit of God that hovers across uh, the land uh, in the Genesis. But then, uh, then when the Higgs was discovered, suddenly Leon Lederman said that uh, he will explain why he called it the God Particle. There's a book by Leon Lederman called The God Particle, which came out in 1985, after about 25 years that they searched for the Higgs in Fermilab in the United States and did not find it. So he wrote a book about the search for the elusive Higgs boson. And he said that when he wrote the book, 
he called it the goddamn particle. Because they can't find it. And then he came to the publisher, and the publisher said to him, listen, nobody will buy a book by the name The Goddamn Particle. Let's call it The God Particle, and then they will buy it. And it worked. So my conclusion is that actually the Higgs boson was discovered 10 years ago. <coughs> and to follow the line of Barbara Cannon, I would say that we walked in darkness for 50 years, trying to shed light on another dark page of nature. Now Atlas and CMS illuminated another page in the book of nature for generations to come. And this page was written by 6,000 physicists, which I think is a, a landmark, because this is how science is going to look now. I mean, if you look around you, you'll see that bigger and bigger groups are formed in order to solve the puzzles of nature, not only in physics, also in uh, biology and uh, the, the big brain project or whatever. And the big science is here, and the Nobel Prize Committee should have to find a way to cope with that. And uh, the Higgs boson was just the first bird that, uh, maybe not the first that deserved also the top quark, etc. But it, indeed, the Higgs boson is uh, truly the last particle that was really discovered. Now we are waiting for the dark matter. Thank you very much. You've been listening to a download from the NYU Abu Dhabi Institute. You'll find more information on our website, www.nyuad.nyu.edu institute.